You know, what a wonderful pairing that the Lord gives us this morning as we consider the baptism of Michael and hear the testimony of, of Liz. Liz, a covenant child born in a Christian family, uh, baptized as a child, probably not unlike uh, Michael here this, this morning. And then a disciple now of the Lord Jesus Christ sharing years later of how the Lord is is uh, helping her overcome her own fear in sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ even in the Muslim community. What an incredible testimony that is, isn't it? Um, to think through the years of God's faithfulness and how it is that he's at work in the midst of his people. Did you catch that when we read earlier in the baptism from Acts chapter 2, that from one generation to another or as many who are afar off, who call upon the name of the Lord. I wonder who in your life seems like far off. Uh, might it be them who the Lord would call unto himself? And might he use you as a means by which to bear witness? It might be even in the context of your workplace. You may have one of those bosses. Uh, you may be one of those bosses that the, that the Lord... Um, and in the context in which you're in, it feels like the complete opposite of what would be Christian or right or true. And might it be in the context of work that the Lord winds up using your work and your witness as a means to extend his kingdom? We want to consider just that because I think that's Paul's intention as we look together at Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. If you will look on with me, Ephesians 6, we'll pick up the reading in verse 5, this is God's word. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word which corrects us and comforts us all at the same time. A word that speaks into every sphere of existence and leaves no rock unturned. We would pray, Father, today that you would break in upon us in our work and in our vocations. That you would guide us to the things that our hands and hearts find to do. And that you would use, yes, even this, for our witness in Christ. We would pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in 1943 that there were 2,000 Westerners that were placed by the Japanese in the Shantung compound, which was an internment camp in China. The aim of this um, particular placement of Westerners was to keep them under control 
as they had been caught in China by the Japanese during World War II. It was up to these Westerners being placed in this camp to really organize themselves. They were given almost no resources or direction by the Japanese, and they had to organize themselves really as a matter of survival. One critical aspect of their life together and their survival is, of course, what is true for all of us, that they needed to organize for work. In his memoir of the Shantung compound, Langdon Gilkey, who was one of the Westerners who was um, in the compound, made this observation about work as they seek to create their own organized society, even there. He said, work and life have a strange reciprocal relationship. Only if man works can he live. But only if the work he does seems productive and meaningful can he bear the life that his work makes possible. Gilbert Mylander says something somewhat similar to that of what Gilkey wrote in his memoir in his wonderful book on work and on vocation entitled Working, Its Meaning and Limits. Uh, Mylander writes this, he says, on the one hand, work is necessary to sustain life. There's an air of obligation that surrounds it. And yet, on the other hand, we're often dissatisfied to think of work simply as useful or as necessary. When we experience our work in that way, that is just useful and necessary, we describe ourselves as alienated and not engaged in our work. Still more, we may be moved to ask a really fundamental question. If I did not need to work in order to live, would there be any reason for me to work? Now, when Mylander raises that question, maybe some of you are raising that question about your work today. If I didn't have to pay the bills, would I work? Well, I guess it would depend on your perspective of work. You've probably heard of the three workers, the three workers who are seen uh, hewning and and, and breaking apart large rocks. A traveler stops by these three workers and individually asks them a question, what is it that you're doing? The first of those workers replied, well, I'm making little rocks out of these big ones. Uh, The second one replied, well, I'm making a living. And the third one replied, well, I'm building a cathedral. Now, which one of them is right? Well, it depends on how we're looking at it, doesn't it? It depends on the perspective of our, of our work. What should be the perspective of the work of Christians? How should we understand our work? I want to look with you in just a few minutes that we have together today at seven truths that I want to encourage you to inform and fill and give shape to the life of your work, our work together as Christians that are given to us here in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Seven truths for us to ponder. Why seven? Because seven is a perfect number. Number, number one Our work is an extension of our worship. Our work is an extension of our worship. 
Now, several weeks ago, when we were looking at the earlier section of Ephesians chapter 5, you may remember that we said that worship is a work. It's something that you do. This is why when you come here this morning, actually being in this context and singing and praying and paying attention and standing up and coming forward, and all of this is both delightful and encouraging and exhausting all at the same time. We learn, though, that not merely is worship a service, this is a worship service, it is a work, but we also learn in the text before us that our work is an extension of our worship. And we learn this in all over the scriptures, in fact, maybe most clearly in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, a text that some of you have probably memorized. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Notice, not just your worship on Sunday, but the whole of who you are as a worship of a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, notice when Paul writes that in Romans chapter 12, he's not just talking about the Lord's Day. He's not just talking about coming to church on Sunday morning, though that's fundamental and essential to the nature of our work and our worship. He's telling us that every moment of every day is a matter of worship. That every moment of every day we're devoted to something supreme. It implies that each moment in our lives, whether in recreation, whether in work, um, whether involved in the context of good deeds, whether in the context of leisure, we are displaying or not our devotion to God. Dorothy Sayers wrote in a wonderful essay on why work, that work is not primarily a thing that one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. For it is, or it should be, the medium through which we offer ourselves to God. Now, one of the many connections between worship and work in the text that's before us is the language that the Apostle Paul uses to actually describe the relations of bondservants here to their masters. Notice, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and with trembling. When we read that a minute ago, some of you were like, oh, he knows my boss. He knows my boss. He knows that my boss is a scary individual, and I often am fearful and trembling in relationship to my boss. No, that's not what Paul is talking about at all. In fact, those words are used in the book of Hebrews for the language of reverence and awe, language that's used to describe our being in the presence of the Lord. Have you thought about yourself being in the presence of the Lord when you're in the presence of your boss? Have you thought about your work in relationship to to worship? Paul is actually saying that Christians are to view those in authority over them as if God put them there, because he did. And that when we are faithfully serving them, we are faithfully serving God. That in obeying them, we are actually obeying God. Do you remember the point that we made last week with regards to children when we said, you know, children, one of the most faithful ways that you can obey God is obey your parents. And now I'm saying to you adults, one of the most faithful ways that you can obey God is to obey your boss, is to obey the one who is an authority over you. Now, that may, in some sense, draw a lot of questions with regards to the fact of, well, what if my boss is hard to deal with? 
Uh, what, if, what if my boss you know, tells me to do something that I morally ought not to do? Well, you remember last week, even as we reflected on children and being under the authority of their parents, they're ultimately under the authority of, of God, even as they're under the authority of their parents. And, and we have the right, when commanded or instructed to do something morally wrong from our boss, to actually obey God rather than our boss. And that disobedience to our boss at that point in time is obedience ultimately to God. That is absolutely true. But most of the time, the instructions that we actually receive from our boss are probably not morally reprehensible. Maybe not even morally questionable. We just don't like them. We just don't like them. We would rather do something different. We'd rather do our own thing. And part of what he's saying here is that our work is an extension of our worship. It's a representation and a reflection of what we really think about the authority of God in our lives. Truth number one, our work is an extension of our worship. Now, that needs some unpacking. So truth number two, all of our work is ultimately unto the Lord. All of our work is ultimately unto the Lord. This is the most central truth of the whole text that we're looking at this morning. It's literally in every verse. Let me note it for you. In verse 5, we're told to obey our earthly masters as you would Christ. Verse 6, because we ultimately are under Christ, we are his bondservants, not the servants of our master. We're the bondservants of Christ, verse 6. And when we render service, we render it not to man, but to the Lord, verse 7. And then knowing that our payment and our reward isn't from man, but ultimately from God, verse 8, both masters and servants have a master who's in heaven, verse 9. It's literally made in every single verse, this point that your work is not unto your boss, but your work is unto your master who is in heaven. For the Christian, whether he or she is under a charge or is actually in charge, our work is always under and directed toward our heavenly master, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are never just waiting tables. We are never just mowing the grass. We are, we are never just cleaning our homes. We are never just taking a test. We are never just managing a project or building or leading a team. Yes, we are doing those things, but we are doing them unto the Lord. Unto the Lord. He is the ultimate end for the things of which we have been called to do vocationally. Now, as we unpack this, this notion of our work is connected to our worship, that all of what we do in our work is ultimately unto the Lord, that again requires, doesn't it, more unpacking, so truth number three. We work knowing that our work position is from the Lord. Our work position is from the Lord. Now, this would have been shocking. It doesn't come across as shocking to you and me, but it is, would have been shocking to the first century. One of the most obvious realities of this text is that the Apostle Paul addresses bondservants and masters in the same, same text. You know what that means? It means that there were actually bondservants and masters worshiping together side by side in Ephesus. The fact that he addresses both of them is a testimony of the power of the gospel, it's actually bringing together disparate groups, groups that typically wouldn't hang out together, groups that sometimes would feel antagonism towards each other. 
He's bringing these groups together in the power of the gospel and he's addressing both of them. And it's telling us that every type of work, every type of station, no matter the social or economic realities behind them, are all represented as a part of the body of Christ. But they're not just represented. Notice Paul gives no favoritism to one position over another. Again, totally shocking. Paul doesn't say, if you're a servant or a slave, that's, that's fine. But do the best you can to not be a servant or a slave. Do the best you can to like, you know, get upwardly mobile. Find a way to get on some kind of ladder and make yourself out of the structure so you can actually do more for Christ. You don't hear anything like that. He speaks directly into the station and he says, based on your station and the position that you have from the Lord, serve for the Lord right where it is that he's placed you. He doesn't say to the master, oh, good for you. You're a master. God obviously cares about you. You can really be used for the Lord. Now try to master more. Try to master more. No, both roles and occupations uh, can be used by the Lord in service to the Lord. It's easy to think, isn't it, that, well, when I finally get that promotion, when I finally get to that position, then I can really serve the Lord. That's not how it works, according to Paul. The position that you're in right now, no matter what position it is, whether you like it or not, is a position that has come from the Lord and is a position that is for the Lord. You can serve the Lord in the midst of that position. Now, that is, of course, not to say that you should never seek or aspire to a greater position or a different position, or you should always turn down every promotion that comes your your way. But What it is saying is that we need to understand that there's not one particular position or one particular promotion that's more important than another. And very often we think that that is true. We're looking to something else that we think will be better, that we even say we'll have more influence, we'll have more resources, we'll have more power. What about more influence, more power, more resources make you think that that's going to help a crucified Savior advance his kingdom? A man who emptied himself of all things, who had nowhere to lay his head, No possessions of his own. The one that we follow, we follow in weakness, not in strength. We follow with the recognition of of the gospel being a foolishness, not a wisdom of the world. Even Liz's testimony this morning, wasn't that a part of it? Liz didn't come. She forgot her entire script. And in the midst of her weakness, what do we see? God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. For some of us, that is going to mean turning down a promotion. You do understand that. In fact, for some of us, and some of us have experienced this, haven't we? we? We know that the Lord has called us and gifted us to be a teacher. But we're in the educational sphere and we're told that it's better to be an administrator. And so we go get the masters. And we get the administration position. And then we realize we're making more money and we don't like it. And we're really not very gifted for it. We took the promotion and now we've, in a sense, promoted ourselves outside of where it is we're actually most effective. That maybe less money be more effective in the work of the kingdom of God. Now, I could say the opposite as well, but, well, you don't need encouragement in that way. Neither do I. We need to hear it that way, don't we? Notice that. Notice that in terms of the truth in the Scripture, that your position is from the Lord, and it is for the purposes of the Lord. He uses us all. Truth number four. Our ultimate aim in work is to please the Lord, not man. Our ultimate aim and work is to please the Lord, not man. Notice Paul's language. We are to obey earthly masters not by way of eye service, I love that language, as people pleasers, but rather, verse 7, we are to render service with a good will to the Lord, not to man. 
Now, we are ultimately saying here in this truth that our work is about pleasing God, but it does not mean that we don't care about pleasing our employer. Some of us would draw that conclusion. Of course, we want to see our employer pleased in our work. We want our efforts. We want the, 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 the energy and the, the talent that has been put into place to be recognized, to be beneficial to the immediate context of our employer or our workplace. In fact, to not care about that is probably to reveal a lack of respect and honor for the person that the Lord's actually put over us. Now, the key word here is ultimate. It's not our ultimate aim to please our employer or our boss. It is instead to please uh, the Lord. It is to please the Lord. He says, if we don't think about pleasing the Lord and we only think about pleasing the boss, we're going to fall into the category of eye service or people pleasing. Now, what, what does he mean by, by this? Well, I want to unpack these two briefly for you. And I want to unpack them this way. What would eye service and people pleasing mean? Well, here's one, here's one way in which that can be applied. Eye service or people pleasing means that we work only when the eye of the master is on us. We work only when the eye of the master is on us. That is, we really work only diligently when we're being watched. When we're being scrutinized, when our work is going to be examined in some way, shape, or form, we start working really hard a month before our review to hopefully change the last 11 months. When our boss comes around, we get busy working and appear to be working hard. In a previous place of employment, which shall remain nameless, I had a supervisor say of, of one of the employees, Oh, she has managed the skill of looking busy while doing nothing. That's exactly it here. She's, she's managed the skill of looking busy while doing uh, nothing. We work only when the eye of the master is upon us. Or, or we work only for the eye of the master. We work only for his or her own sight. Of our work. This is the same idea from a diff slightly different angle, meaning that we're only trying to please the master. Now, listen, if we're only trying to please the master, there are going to be two different things that are going to happen. And you can test your heart on this. One is you're, you're going to be lazy because you're going to do just enough to please the master. Lowest common denominator. You're only working for his or her eye. Or you're going to be very anxious in your working. Very anxious in your working. Maybe your employer is very, very hard. And you, maybe you live as a person more getting your identity wrapped up in your work. And so the affirmations of your employer are so important to you that you will work yourself to the bone in order to please him or her. Notice in one case, we're idolizing our comfort. We're willing to be lazy because we only work for the eye of our master. We're living for the weekend. And the other is we're working ourselves to the bone because we're living as if our identity is built in our work. Test your own heart on that. Do you default to laziness or anxiety? Are you working for the eye only of the master? Truth number five, we work with sincerity of heart. Paul says we obey with a sincere heart. He says in verses six and seven, that is doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with good will. Now, the word sincere literally means without hypocrisy. It means we work honestly, to put it positively. 
This means, of course, at a fundamental level, within the workplace, we don't cheat, we don't steal, we don't lie. But it goes deeper than that. Of course, those things are true. It means that we don't present something as our work when it really isn't our work. You know how subtle that can be. How we receive credit for something that really someone else on our team did. We don't mention that. We don't exaggerate the effort that we've put into something. Oh, I worked so hard on that. I gave it a good 10 minutes. Or give the impression that we have gone far beyond the call of duty and there were so many dead ends and struggles and difficulties in this just so you can, in a sense, build an alibi for why it's so poorly done. All of this is out of order for the Christian, you see. It's not a sincereness of heart. There's a deception. There's a deceit that's at the heart of our work. Paul says we are to work as those who are sincere, without hypocrisy, full of honesty, with goodwill as unto the Lord. Truth number six. We work knowing our reward comes from the Lord. We work knowing our reward comes from the Lord. Paul says we work knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. And the number one reason that many of us work is more than likely because we get remunerated for it. We, we, make, we make money so we can, we can survive. More than that, we can, we can thrive. And provision, I'm here to say, is a noble task. It's a biblical task. You remember 1 Timothy 5, 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially the members of his household, he has denied the faith. But do we work solely for our remuneration? Do you have a tendency to focus simply on remuneration or financial benefit that comes from the work? Have you solely made decisions on your work based upon those factors? Or maybe you're one who works to experience the satisfaction of the use of your gifts. You just want to see your gifts on display. You just want to steward well that which the Lord has given to you. We'll say it sort of like that, especially when we want to baptize it. But, but the reality is, as important as it is for our gifts to be used and for there to be some measure of satisfaction in our work, that's actually not the end game of our work. Maybe we just want to feel a sense of accomplishment. Isn't it so great to feel a sense of accomplishment? You know that feeling, you know it. You know that feeling of finishing the mowing of the backyard and then sitting on the porch and just looking at it. It's a great feeling. It's not the primary reason we work. It's not a bad reason for work. It's just not an ultimate reason for work. According to Paul, none of these are the ultimate aim for our work. Our aim in terms of our reward is not feeling satisfied fully in our job, not feeling, seeing that we've been productive, not receiving a paycheck. But he says the ultimate aim is that we would receive back from the Lord. The language is actually language of getting your due, getting what it is that you are due. It's language of justice. 
Paul is telling us that whether we're a servant or a master, an employee or an employer, a white-collar professional or a blue-collar worker, we will not know or receive our due for work here. We will receive our due for work when Christ returns. Now, why is that? Because your work is unto the Lord. Your work is an extension of worship. Your position is from the Lord and it's for the Lord. Well, why is it that you can never get your due for the work that it is that you have done here and now? Because, well, the work is not about just here and now. Your work is a labor unto eternity itself. Which really leads us to the seventh and final truth. A truth that's found not just in this text, hinted at in several ways, but a, a truth that is found in the scriptures. Truth number seven. We work resting in the finished work of our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Regardless of how faithful we are in our work, whether under a charge or in charge, we will fail to work as we ought to work. That's really been clear, hasn't it, in all of these truths, hasn't it? As we've made our way through these, you've said to yourself, ooh, oh, several things have felt painful, convicting, even as we've worked our way through these truths. You need to hear that we ultimately can only rest in our work knowing that Christ has finished his work on our behalf. Notice that the good news of Christ is that he never failed to work as he ought. He never worked for eye service or to please man. He carried out his work with fear and trembling. He was absolutely sincere of heart, always obeying the will of his father, his authority in heaven. And his work, interestingly, was to cover the failings of your work. That was his work. The times in which you have compromised for Christ in the workplace. The times in which you have shirked that which you should have taken up. Times in which you have done the right thing for all the wrong reasons. In all of those things, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't strive for a promotion. He emptied himself of the highest possible position in all of human history in order that he might be obedient. Notice, obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. That we might be saved. Uh, more than that, that our work would be meaningful. That our work would have an eternal impact. That really, there is an eight truth, isn't it, here? But I can't use the number eight. It's not, doesn't fit within the seven here. But there really is, isn't there, the eight truth, that the fact that, that your work actually will pass into eternity. Because it won't be until Christ comes back that you're ultimately going to get your due. How is your due going to come? From the work that you have done for him. How will we know that? Not until eternity. So you're not just waiting until eternity. You're laboring right now, pushing towards eternity. And you're either laying up treasures in heaven or you're not. And the point of the fact is that Jesus here has actually secured a place for you in the new heavens and the new earth. And you know what he's doing? He's working for you. He's interceding for you. He's gone to prepare a place for you that he might bring you home. And so he says to you and he says to me, let's not grow weary in doing good. For at the proper time, 
we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. At the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Friends, I have no idea if you're happy in your work, if you're satisfied in your work, if you're being remunerated appropriately for your work or, or remunerated too much for your work, which may be the case. I know one day, though, all things will be known, won't they? And the nature of our work will be utterly revealed. And what we will find is that sometimes masters will get a different kind of due in eternity than they got here on earth. And servants will get a different kind of due in eternity than they got here on earth. Let us remember that he who is first will be last, right? And he who is last will be first. Whether a boss or whether an employee, whether a master or whether a servant, serve. Do all to the glory of God. And he will be sure that none of it is wasted. That all of it translates into eternity. Lay up treasures in heaven. Not on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Lay up treasures that can never be taken from you. Treasures found even in Christ. Oh, Father in heaven, we pray that these truths would work their way into our hearts this morning. Would you guide and direct us in our working lives to be men and women who would be faithful to work unto you. Come, Lord, and hear that prayer and answer it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.